Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Weekly Word Podcast. I'm Chris Hout, AIM Coach, and this is episode number 97. I wanted to remind everybody, because there have been a lot of new listeners and a lot of new newsletter joiners with um, the purpose of what this podcast is. And I know many of you have heard this before, but I just also like to continue to remind us all on the purpose and the intent of what we're doing, whether it's on this Weekly Word podcast, the Weekly Word newsletter, or in my coaching. And that clarity of purpose is so important as we go through training for endurance events, as we go through many things we do in our daily lives. But I'm tying it back to athletics for right now. But clarity of purpose allows us all, whether you're listening, whether you're my athlete, whether you just read the newsletter occasionally, all to have a better sense of where we're going, why we're doing it, and what brings us together. And that purpose is sharing with you all anything I possibly have learned, observed, picked up, been coached by in my years of endurance as well, but as also as a swimmer on a pretty high level, from international swimming to college swimming to NCAAs to triathlon to professional triathlon to ultra running to ultra endurance events to multi-day stage races to all kinds of things. And not just what I've been exposed to, but also what my friends and my athletes and those in a in our community have been exposed to that they have been so generous to share with me. Coaches, other athletes, other professional athletes, other high-level operators, all kinds of that. And that is why I keep reiterating that clarity of purpose and what we're doing. And that is helping you, the endurance athlete, enjoy the gratification of setting a goal on the outer boundary of what you thought was possible, what you could even imagine was possible. It can't be something that you know what you're capable of. And sure, yes, faster, better, stronger is a nice um, goal. And it does push you, but there is nothing that compares to when you're on the outer boundary of what you think you actually are capable of, what you can imagine, because that really flexes us and pushes us into areas that we're uncomfortable, that we're insecure, that we're facing fears. And with that, we're hugely, what kind of word is that? Um, Very powerfully learning and growing. And that's the whole purpose we're doing a lot of this. It is in order to grow, to become better, to become smarter, to become stronger from a mental standpoint with regards to ultra endurance events and endurance events. Most of us have the physical capabilities or can train the physical capabilities pretty quickly to do an endurance event from half Ironman to Ironman to even longer, from 50K to 50 mile to 100 mile or even longer. That's not the challenge. And you might roll your eyes, you're right, Chris. Um, You can say that, but no. Within six months, you can run a 50K or a 50 miler. Of course, as I always talk about, it's a question of expectations and desired outcomes, right? If your expectations are to win in six months, no, that's not going to happen. But if your expectations are set to finish it, yes, you can do a 50 miler in six months. 
What is your time available? All those things. That's a different part of this conversation. But the challenge is more. And the, the part that we're fascinated in, hopefully listening to this, is where you're growing mentally and how the things you're learning here in this environment, whether we're talking about it or when you're out training and doing these miles, um, what you're growing and what you're learning from it and how you're applying it in your everyday life how it makes you more confident, how it makes you more organized, how it makes you more creative, more patient, more vibrant, more alive, how you set an example for those around you, for your family, for your coworkers, your consistency, your discipline, right? Your persistence, your willingness to embrace the difficulties. So that is the big component here that we all have in common in the endurance world. And that's why, yes, of course I can help you get faster. And if you're looking to go from 12 hours in an Ironman to a 9.30, I can help you with that, of course. But it's a dangerous game to be outcome-driven like that. And I say that to all of my athletes. If we are engaged in the process and looking to get better with the right effort and attitude and focus, because then the... That 9.30 will happen on its own. You might even break through 9.30, or you might be stuck at 10.15. But because of your hours available, because of your best effort, because of your focused athlete mindset and attitude, that is where you're plateauing. Not because of your ability, not because of coaching, but because of where you are in life and you currently just can't give more. You have family, you have career and such. So... Because you are happy with the process and the journey, you won't judge and beat yourself up that you're not achieving this 930 number. Which puts us back to the goals and intentions that we talked about two or three episodes ago. So that's the big thing to keep in mind. If you're outcome driven, it's a difficult game to play because you're constantly doing the old school game of, I said I would and therefore I will. And you push yourself through. And what happens when you push yourself through? It means family or career or other things get overlooked. And your tension and your stress levels and your focus is so um, tunnel-oriented that the people that are actually around you and support you and your career, which is more important, we went pro and something other than this, all start getting pushed away. And we don't want that. That's not how you're going to be successful in the ultra endurance and endurance world. No way, no how. And a lot of athletes have turned Ironman triathlon into this super measurable focused outcome. If I hold a certain wattage and I run a certain pace, well, that's all good and great. But if you're not enjoying the process of riding your bike and measuring the numbers and riding at watts and doing the intervals, rain or shine on a trainer, well, then you're going to burn out before you hit your potential. If you're a marathon runner and you're looking to break three hours and you're on that cusp of, let's say, 311 or 309 and you can taste it, but now you start pushing too hard or you're driving too many miles or you're, you're forcing it, through niggles, you're going to be injured or you're going to burn out too. You're going to plateau at 305, 307 just because you're doing more miles, but too much intensity, too much focus on the outcome. I never like the sticky note on the, 
mirror or on the fridge that had a time or had a result there. And you might say, well, Chris, how many years did you try to win the Ironman? Until I let go? Again, I'm trying to share my years of experience here. And yes, we all need to sort of go through our trials and tribulations ourselves. I understand that. But again, you can take this input, you can take this advice and ignore it and go about your own path. Or you can sort of say, all right, that's a good perspective. I should keep that in mind. It doesn't mean you switch everything that you're doing, but it's just something to keep in mind. Huh, all right. But as soon as I switched from focusing too much on winning Ironman, I started having better results and I won it easily. And this is the first, the first time I should have won it easily. But what did I do? I switched it to wanting to be so fit and so prepared and so having fun with the journey that I then became fitter than the course, fitter than whatever the day and the circumstances threw at me. And they threw some funky stuff at me. But I finally won because of that. And that's the same thing for all of you. The growing to be fitter than the course, you need to enjoy the process. You need to enjoy the journey. You need to be happy with your effort. And you need to be happy with how you apply yourself as an athlete every day. I talk about this with regards to being an athlete every day. And I have a bunch of emails in my email box from listeners who want to know more about being an athlete. And I'm going to go into that today. But your ability to put those two together, effort and attitude, will allow you to sort of roll with the punches of what this training and trying to fit it all in into this lifestyle of we also have families, we also have a personal life, we also have a social life, or we also have a career, we also are learning, we're also expanding our abilities in our career and our workplace, maybe taking an evening MBA class. Maybe still finishing up some high-level degrees. Maybe, you know, you're on a big project at work that takes a year because you're developing something, whatever, right? I'm just using examples, but that's where you're growing and that's going to require your resources. Does that mean you give up ultra-endurance training? No, it does not. There are plenty of things we can be doing that still are moving you forward, that still foster your growth, that still foster your fitness, right? We all can build a foundation brick by brick. There's, there's my puppy Winnie again. But she also figured out that if she rings the doorbell or that, those jingle bells, that she'll get attention, meaning we'll come over there. So I know she was just out. So that was that. But um, as we build those bricks by brick on the foundation, Let's look at it as that um, the bricks are the training, are the true workouts, right? But we need to put some concrete in between there and some, and so that we lay the bricks on the concrete, uh, on, so that they're connected. We don't just lay a bunch of bricks there with nothing holding them together. And what's holding them together are the little things that you do. Good sleep, good nutrition, a good mindset good prep, right? Good understanding of what we're doing so that when we can train, we're not on the project or we're, we have a couple of days easier or life opens up a bit, we're able to put in five or six bricks at once 
right? Setting up a, um, an infrastructure so that when we can train, we're ready. Setting up an infrastructure or um, a um, um, scaffolding of those on that building when we do start putting in the bricks that we can do it quickly and efficiently. We've learned. We've learned how to, how to um, eat better, drink better, recover better, do the workouts better, understand our zones better, all that. We can move forward in many ways. All right. Now she's looking at me. I think she needs some water. So the important part there and the point I'm trying to make is that we want to understand that endurance athletics isn't always about the workouts and you don't have to feel like you're not progressing or that you missed a bunch and therefore you're taking a bunch of steps back because you missed a workout or you had to cut it short many days in a row, right? You had an hour and you only got in 40 minutes or you only got in the core workout with a short run or a variety of different aspects. But there's many, many things that you're able to pull back and grow from it when you, when you pull back and think about it. When you think about, all right, I was smarter today on my eating. I was smarter today on my sleeping. I was smarter today on taking care of my body. I was smarter today on how I prepped for the limited workout time that I had. I was smarter today in communicating with my coach in order to let him know or her know that I am limited in my time and let's sit down or let's communicate together on how to best structure the next five, six days. Boom, right there, you are taking on the athlete mindset because you are right there saying, I am going to maximize my outcome with the limited time I have. That allows you to be coached. That allows you to move forward. No, maybe not in the big two, three, four, five strides that you thought you might, but maybe in a tiny little small stride or small step moving forward. Because again, the progression and the big picture in mind, you're moving ever so gently towards the bigger outcome. So, and you know, communication brings back a whole different aspect of this. And that is the, the, the ability of the athlete to communicate. So many of you have the ability to train. So many of you have the ability to physically do some serious, serious stuff, whether it's volume, whether it's the intervals and demands on your body, but you're only pulling in one component of this entire process towards making you better, stronger, fitter, and smarter towards your ultra endurance goals or any type of endurance goal. Heck, I would say without communication in any aspect of life, you're not working as effectively towards your goals. And because you're just, you're muscling your way through. That's what I would call that. You're muscling your way towards your outcome, but without the, without nourishing the soul and without the effective communication, you're missing some bigger components there. The mental aspect and the nourishing the soul aspect. Because for example, I had an athlete, he's an operator down in Africa. He is one heck of a Marine. And we've been working together for quite some time. And he's a really fit one. 
and I can throw whatever I want at him. And he's a Marine. The dude can handle whatever I throw at him. And he has clearly displayed that he is a tough, tough dude. But now we're working on getting him his SOC, which is the Special Operations, Special Operations Command within the Marine Corps unit. And the physical aspects of what's required for this are basically, um, I wouldn't say a joke, but they're not very demanding. And it's somewhat disappointing, actually, to see this protocol and what they're asked to do. But that's neither here nor there. He's going to be way fitter than that. He already is way fitter than that. He's going to be way stronger than that. He's going to be, not from a muscular standpoint, but in other aspects of a standpoint, he's going to be better prepared for that. And he's going to absolutely crush the physical demands. But I told him, in order to be effective in his new role, in his new unit, in his new... Um, space that he will be working on, he needs to be a more effective communicator. And how he communicates with me, his coach, because he's not very good currently at communicating, will also set up his leadership qualities as he goes forward. He will actually learn to communicate what he doesn't know and how he needs help and how he might be vulnerable and how he will look for the input and the advice and the direction of others. In order for many athletes to have a better outcome, it might require that they ask more questions, that they, have, that they gain the efficiencies of the workout and the adaptations of the workout in order to not only have the best possible outcome, but also to sidestep any of the wasted time. There's not a week that goes by that I don't have athletes who I talk to after their workout. Had they just asked before the training or before or earlier in that week as they're looking ahead at their workouts, then we wouldn't have had this ambiguity and this confusion and this curiosity. I tell a lot of athletes, I don't know what you're thinking. I don't know how you're reading this, these workouts. I don't know how you might be interpreting things. I don't know what's going through your head. And I can't constantly check in with all my athletes saying, everything good? Everything good? Checking in. How are you doing? Making sure that you understand the week. Like that, that, that's not what coaching is. Coaching is standing beside you and helping you achieve the best possible outcomes for this week of training. And in this case, the Marine, his best outcome as he's training for this SOC, the um, MSOC, um, isn't going to be, the best outcome isn't going to be his ability to physically um, uh, meet the demands or exceed the demands. His best outcome will be if he learns the leadership qualities and the um, ability to communicate better. Because of course he's going to have to make decisions in the field as a unit leader or even on his own, on his own. He's going to have to make his own decisions and somewhat quickly. But there's going to be plenty of times where 
when he's making decisions and he needs the input of his team, where he needs to ask questions, where he needs to be effective in his communication and making sure that the orders he's receiving are also being interpreted and understood by him effectively. And that vulnerability, that willingness to put aside the ego and that willingness to say, hey, maybe I don't know, maybe I should get more information, will be a huge asset in his future as a military operator, especially as he's now moving into some of the special operations units. And your ability to take a variety of input and ask for help, ask for guidance, like I was saying earlier, doesn't mean he has to take it all and it doesn't mean he has to apply it all, but at least he's getting different perspectives and he's getting different inputs from the people who might have a different perspective than him. And then he can make a qualified, smarter, better, stronger decision. And that's the same thing we're learning here in, in our, your ability as an athlete to communicate with me. Your ability to communicate with your coach or communicate how you're feeling or communicate how, what you're observing, to communicate how you're growing, communicate how you're failing, communicate what you don't understand. All those will just be tools in, in your arsenal to make you a better athlete. Like failing is the whole purpose of training. The word training is derived from failing. And the purpose there is you want to fail and learn, fail and grow, because you don't want to fail when all the chips are in, in your race, in your event, in your expedition, right? Or in that high pressure situation. That's when you're executing a plan that you know you can execute and you've rehearsed and failed at and seen different angles and readapted to many, many, many times in training. And there are no questions marks. As I've said to many athletes many years, for, for many years now, when we're done going into an Ironman, into a 50K, into a 50 miler, well, those become a little bit different because of the terrain and the conditions and so forth. But Ironman is way more measured, way more controlled, and they don't put them in very difficult locations. When we go into an Ironman, you should be able to test, know your time within 15 minutes. That means you should be able to say, today, if I just execute based off my fitness, and the things I've learned and grown and my numbers and seen what in, in training, I should be able to go 10, 20. Boom. Within that, within two or three or five minutes of that. If a couple things go wrong, I should be able to go 10, 35. If a couple things go really well and all the chips fall just right, I should be able to go 10, 05 for 10 minutes, 10 hours. It's all within a small spectrum because there shouldn't be this much ambiguity. This is why we train. This is why we're doing this. So that you don't have ambiguity and confusion or concerns or nerves on race day. Because you know you can execute it. You have done it a zillion times. Nerves are just questioning if you will have it today. And the beauty of endurance events is you have enough time. This isn't a 100-meter sprint where it comes down to hundreds of a second. There, I understand nerves. 
This isn't swimming where it comes down to hundreds of a second. There I understand nerves because there, even if you execute hundreds of a second, things become weird. But even there, if you execute your race and do the best to your ability based off what you trained and based off of how you learned and based off of the knowledge you accumulated and how you applied yourself and you executed an outstanding race, you're going to be happy with your outcome no matter what. Even if some guy out of nowhere beats you and you get silver, of course you'll be bummed. But you know what I mean. This is in the Olympics. Um, you're still going to be happy. Like, listen, I went X time. I feel great about that because that was flawless. I would just be reaching, and like we said in a, a few episodes ago, uh, to start looking for time afterwards, despite it being a really good outcome, a flawless execution, that's a dangerous game to play because you will never, ever be satisfied. And then you're outcome driven again and not part of the process, thinking about the process and thinking about how you executed the process if it went flawless. So there's so many things that we can learn to become an athlete, to be an athlete, to help you enjoy the gratification of setting a goal on the outer boundary of what you think you could imagine was possible. That's what we're doing here. And I know this is a long intro, but hopefully there are plenty of tidbits in there that you can successfully apply to your training in the next few weeks. Okay, I want to talk about a variety of things this week. I want to talk about cross-training. I want to talk about training while traveling. I want to talk about uh, not forgetting life is the expedition we are all training for. I also want to talk about Alaska Man and coming to the realization a few weeks ago, uh, about two weeks ago, on why I'm actually doing it and that there's something in there that I didn't realize. So, uh, and then we got a variety of questions this week. So let's dive right in and get going on episode 97. I get a lot of questions every week on a variety of different topics. And then I also get a lot of um, emails on training logs with a lot of input and comments and questions in there. So overall, I would like to say I'm getting a pretty good sense of what athletes are thinking about or wondering about or want to know more about or there's confusion around. And one of them is regarding cross-training and cross-training as we're training for our endurance event. For example, Orange Theory. That's a great cross-training opportunity. It's social. It's high intensity. It uses different muscle groups. It changes um, the movements to also some more lateral and cross-body movements. It's core, it's strength, it's speed, it's explosiveness. I love that idea built into your regular training week. Um, so things like that, and you might have similar in your, in your own routine, think of it like that. How am I shaking the tree? Right? How am I shaking my own tree and doing something that creates um, confusion and something different than what my body is constantly recognizing it wants to do? Swim, bike, run, or similar, right? And maybe some strength and core work. So, Orange Theory is a great thing for that. 
CrossFit is a great thing for that. No, I don't believe in doing CrossFit more than twice a week. Um, and then I look for it in phases because um, I believe that the strength gains and the benefits have to be in, in, in specific phases and applied as they go into our endurance training and come out and, and go in waves. But again, different muscle groups, different fatigue level, different high intensity. It just, again, shakes the tree and creates some movements and some difficulties outside our usual um, pattern recognition. We want to shake things up a bit. There's a big theory in exercise physiology that I believe a lot in, and that is confusion, muscle confusion. And I believe also there's energy confusion and there's metabolism confusion. And so if you think about confusion, all of a sudden, instead of all aerobic and sort of tempo work, some high intensity VO2 max lung burning work, that's confusion. Different muscle groups, different application of muscle groups, that's confusion versus what we usually do. Or even, let's say, um, energy levels, right? Are you fat burning and aerobic? Are you anaerobic and sugar and glycogen burning? Again, confusion, never letting the body think too much that it's going to be in the same exact pattern or repetition as before. So that's what they're great for. Or yoga, for example. Yoga is a great time to include into your endurance training. Why? Yes, it is somewhat of a stretching routine. But it's also a way to check in with your body, to just exhale, to sort of go inside yourself, to not look at a me measured outcome, right? There is no winning in yoga. There's no I'm stronger than you in yoga. There's no I'm better than you in yoga. Sure, some people might be super um, familiar with all the, the, the poses and the flow of the class and able to do a lot of things. But guess what? Your benefit is just as good as their benefit from a meditation standpoint, from nourishing the soul standpoint, from the movements and range of motion standpoint, they're already flexible. So for them to get the value that you're getting when you're not as flexible, they have to do a lot more. You only have to do a little bit and you get a ton of benefit of range of motion, right? So another great example, no, it's not a workout. It's not supposed to be a workout. It, but again, it back to the original topic of how is it making me better? How am I progressing forward? How is it a step forward in towards my endurance training and my future outcomes? Yoga is great for that because you're going to come out as a better athlete because of it. Because you had time to go into your body, to listen to what it was telling you, to exhale, to allow those joints and ligaments and the back and the legs and the neck and the shoulders and everything to just sort of move a little bit differently and a little bit calmer and a little bit more relaxed and therefore put your mind and your soul into a different place than always being in the other place of pace and watts and heart rate and speed and outcomes and good thing about yoga is it just puts you in a completely different mindset. Again, growing. I come out of that class, I'm better than when I went in. I'm further along a little bit in who I am and why I'm doing this and a part of the journey as I was before doing that class. So I, yeah, all that I'm a fan of. Again, 
we have to choose when we're doing it and how we're doing it because if it doesn't fit or if it's compromising key workouts that we need for our build for what we're getting ready for maybe we might not want to go to yoga five times a week but once or twice a week great if you can fit it in and you're fitting in the other load and it doesn't compromise sleep and recovery right you're not just doing something on a recovery day where it should be off and you're just keeping yourself busy no it is important to also let the body completely rest right but many of you have time many of you also say okay i would rather not do that easy run or that easy spin and go to yoga today something we can totally work into the plan now there's other times where we need the easy run because we're looking for volume and economy and range uh, um, and um oxygen efficiency and that comes oftentimes with easy runs and when we're a little bit fatigued so that we can return to technique and form and so forth we've we've talked about that in a little bit but also again you get the point so cross training is something you can look at but let's try to fit it into the plan properly time it where it fits into the long range plan and where we're going and when our our sports specific time needs to be and that 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 doesn't um conflict with the key workouts we need to get in for the week and our recovery right but yeah i love the right cross training i came across an article um a post by seth godin uh, probably 10 days ago and i really liked the post because how it adapted or adjusted for us ultra endurance athletes and so i modified the wording here a little bit but the concept and the principles come from Seth Godin on his blog. And it goes like this. As you spend more time in the endurance world, it's not unusual for the stakes to go up, for events to look and feel bigger with more inputs, more decisions, more pitfalls. It can be exciting, but you can also risk a lot. Begin to flounder, as Seth says. Here are two analogies that might help you decipher what's actually going on. It's entirely possible that the water is quite deep. The thing is, if you're used to swimming in water that's six feet deep, then 60 feet de of depth is actually no different. It's no more dangerous or difficult. It simply feels that way. Giving a speech to 20,000 people isn't 20 times more difficult than giving one to 1,000. It's worth reminding yourself regularly that the work hasn't changed, merely your narrative about the stakes involved. On the other hand, if you're used to surfing six-foot swells and you find yourself on an island in the Indonesian archipelago where the swells are 25 feet, this is a good moment to sit on the beach for a while. Surfing bigger waves is not the same as surfing small waves, but with more effort. It's an entirely different interaction, and that's not all in your head. That's where I tie in ultra-endurance events. Take a lesson. Take five lessons. Give yourself room to learn. Don't jump from 6 feet to 25 feet in one day. And don't assume that just because you figured out how to survive at 25 that you're ready for 50, <laughs> i.e. mavericks. Big waves are usually right next to big reefs. Time and growth will allow you to gain perspective. I added that piece. 
Begin with the question, is this a deep water problem or a big wave problem? Are your endurance goals a deep water problem or a big wave problem? The average day is filled with deep water moments and we can get our narrative straight and learn to thrive even when we think the water is too deep. That's what I talk about with regards to consistency, priorities, and focus. The average day is filled with deep water moments and we can get our narrative straight. That means our priorities, our perspective, our choices. Narrative in our mind and how we see our days are our choices. There are priorities. We choose to train. We choose to eat healthy. We choose to be prepared for our workouts. We choose to make family a priority. We choose to be focused and present at work. And then we choose the third priority, which is our training, our self-care, our fitness, our growth, our healthy lifestyle. I, I say the deep water moments are basically choices. It's in our control to see, to approach the choices that we make as a deep water problem. Are, do we have the right narrative? The stakes are higher, sure, because the water might be deeper. But if you get back to the fundamentals and do the things you're supposed to do, keep things simple, it's no different than six feet water or 600 feet water, right? If you are doing your task simply, effectively, and with the right priority and choices in your day, you can get it all done. Every now and then, we are flung into or presented with big wave moments. When you see one, don't walk away right away, but get yourself a coach. Educate yourself. Prepare with a long-term perspective in mind because every wave does flatten out if you observe and wait it out. I added that last piece. And what the point there is, is when you do take on the bigger ultra endurance goals, when you move from a marathon or 50K to a 50 mile or a 100 miler, when you go from a half Ironman and Olympic distance to Ironman, when you raise um, the, the, the bar and go to Ultraman, when you take on ultra endurance adventures in difficult terrain, right? Those are things where you might want to say, all right, I'm going to learn, I'm going to grow, I'm going to dive into this from a growth perspective and take my time. I'm going to educate myself. I'm going to prepare with a long-term perspective in mind. Because as we have been saying, the new normal means that you flattened out the waves, right? It's like Seth was saying, just because you've learned to go from 6 to 25, now 25 becomes the new more normal. Doesn't mean that 50, you're ready for 50. But when you're looking at 50 from 25, it's different than looking at 50 from 6. And you also saw that you grew from six feet waves to 25 feet waves. So you can see the path, you can see the perspective, you can see where you're going. And the same thing is with ultra endurance events. 
Keep that in mind as you're progressing in your mileage and your training and your knowledge about your body and how you're absorbing the training and your nutrition during the event or during your training, your heart rate, how you deal with hills, how you deal with downhills, how you're building strength, what in your core is needed, all that. That is moving from a six-foot wave to a 25-foot wave, creating a new normal and looking at a 50-foot wave from a different perspective, from a long-term perspective, from a growth perspective. Whereas going faster, better, stronger in an event that you already know is that changing the narrative. You are looking to go faster in an Ironman. You are looking to go faster in a 50K. Well, you've raised the stakes but fundamentally, the difference is zero. It's the same distance. It's the same three legs of an Ironman, right? But you're looking to raise the stakes by going faster, by reducing the time you're out there. So you just went from six feet water to 600 feet water. So we want to do things cleaner, smarter, better priorities, smarter training, more effective use of our time, Specific workouts, right? Um, Discipline training, not just going out and doing junk miles, but purposeful practice, as many of you know those terms. And so those are the two different perspectives. So you want to understand what am I getting ready for? Am I getting ready for an event where I'm just changing the narrative? I need to be focused and consistent and have my priorities straight and keep balance in my life as I'm progressing towards my goal, towards my intended outcome? Or am I taking on a bigger challenge, a bigger project, a bigger endeavor where I need to keep the journey, the process in mind, because then I'm gradually every week, every month creating a new normal so that the mountaintop doesn't seem so far away. Okay, let's dive into some email questions that I've received either directly or via AIM Coaching website. And uh, let's jump into the first one. Hi, Chris. I started following you and your philosophies on performance training and coaching since I learned about you on the Rich Roll podcast. I've listened to all your episodes on RRP and started listening to your weekly words as well. I'm not a pro athlete, are any of us? But about two years ago, my fascination in human performance or what the human body can potentially achieve if you train it has grown more and more. Since then, I've been regularly listening to podcasts with professional athletes and elite performance coaches like you. I'll pause right there. Um, There are a lot of podcasts out there with professional athletes, and um, I have a pet peeve with them. And not necessarily that there's not value and good insights in most of them. And most professional athletes are able to um, share some, some valuable tidbits. My frustration with them is that, one, we want to learn how to apply this in the real world, which means we're working athletes, we have families, we don't have time to recover and rest the way these athletes do. We don't have nutritionists and chefs the way these athletes do. We don't have full body work and daily routines and schedules with that revolve around maximum recovery and absorption and um, adaptation of the body, as well as, you know, 
stretching, strength routines, strength coaches, and so forth. Um, that scheduling is also very important because the body gets in rhythms and sleep and naps and so forth. Um, so the load that they can put their body under is completely different. And again, it's their profession. Second of all, their ability to prioritize is different when you're a professional athlete. It's with regards to um, family in many cases, yes, but they are still professional athletes and family and what they have with regards to career and personal growth and learning and career advancement is very limited because again, they're professional athletes. So the application of their tips need to be taken very carefully because what they do can often not be absorbed or applied to our lifestyle effectively um, if if um, if we don't keep that in mind, if we try to repeat it too frequently or things like that. So um, be careful with the tidbits, put them into perspective with regards to how it fits as an athlete who also has a full-time job and a family and other priorities with regards to community and so forth. Um, just a little um, asterisk to put there. Um, performance coaches like you as guests and reading publications related to the topic. And you are one of the few whose principles and philosophies I find very interesting. And so I've experimented or have incorporated the things you've preached in my self-directed workout sessions, i.e. zone two training and seen amazing results. So thank you for sharing your knowledge with the world. I'm also sending you this email to ask you what you think of the Maffetone method and the 180 formula. Um, is it a zone two? Because if I'm not mistaking, it's a zone three training for me if I use that formula. Okay, so great question. And um, I've talked about this a little bit before, but I'm a big fan of Phil and his approach. And it is basically the foundation of zone two training. It's where it all comes from. Um, but with any formula, and I don't know if I've discussed this before, but I'm pretty sure I have because I'm pretty clear about it for so many. With any formula like that that's in a book, it's supposed to apply to the masses and get you into a general safe range where there might be the proper adaptation. But a formula doesn't count N being one, being you, um, enough. And so as we get further down the road of this training, and in this case, this athlete having been doing this for about two years, those numbers will become more and more vague, incorrect, inaccurate, um, because the formula is based on the masses off of a general populace. I don't like 220 minus age. I don't like the 180 number. It's a good starting point but then we should be doing things that are more specific to us and determining our zones to us, not the bigger part of the bell curve. When doctors tell you the same, I mean, I bring this example up all the time with regards to pregnant women and doctors still to this day saying the, keep your heart rate below 140. Again, it's a safe number. They can't go wrong with 99.9% .9 of women keeping their heart rate under 140, but it means nothing. It is such a general vague number that it means nothing. 
And so a lot of these numbers that are out there, a lot of the publications, a lot of the web, they have to do that to cover their you know what, because if those numbers are too specific and they're too far on the edges, then they are taking on risks with um, the health and so forth of the athletes. So these are very general, vague, safe numbers. And that's why I don't like the 180 um, to get a good number once you've been training. And to start, any of these formulas are good to start and then for you to observe how you move along. In training peaks or Joe Friel's numbers or Phil Maftone's numbers or at any of the formulas out there, those are great numbers to start. But then start diving into and honing into and narrowing into the range that's applicable to you. And that's important. Um, whether it is you do the five by one mile test that I talk about. And um, I think I should put that up on the website. I get so much input on that. I will just put that up on my website. Hold on, I'm writing that down. Um, and then also, um, I have an, a newer test, not a newer test, but a more advanced test because it's harder to do. Um, it's a seven mile, basically all out run. Um, and using some of the data in there on the back half to get a good sense of what LT, lactate threshold, anaerobic threshold is. Those two are interchangeable words, LT, lactate threshold, and anaerobic threshold. Um, so, but uh, again, as you learn your numbers and as you observe your numbers and as you observe your RPE, use that and do some of the more specific tests. Of course, if you can get lactate threshold testing done in your neighborhood, in your area, even if it's an hour away, it is so valuable with regards to exact pinpointed data to you. And if some of you are confused or um, don't really understand what the data is when you get the lactate threshold done, send it to me. I'll discuss it here on the podcast, not necessarily highlighting your fitness or unfitness, but more the concepts and why and what it means and what the curve is and what the heart rate line is and what lactate accumulation actually means and millimoles. I'll gladly go through that. Again, we should be demystifying this stuff so that, again, you all have the tools available to have the best possible training. If I can get you all 80% there, and you're missing the last 20%, that's a good problem to have. Then, once we're all there in a, in a couple of years on this podcast, then we'll focus on that last 20% to turn you all into the best possible athletic current versions of yourselves. Okay, question number two. My goals are to complete some 30 to 50K runs and some 50 to 100 mile mountain bike races this spring, summer, and fall. But I have some confusion about how to get the appropriate training done for both disciplines without neglecting one or overtraining. If it is not already, I think it would make a great podcast topic. All right. So, um, good question, but something that I think high level I have answered a lot on this podcast, and that is keep in mind of the, the focus that you're in. A 50 to 100 mile mountain bike ride and a 30 to 50K run, we're talking about similar times out there in the aerobic <clears throat> excuse me, capacity. Now, 
of course, um, 100 mile mountain bike races take a, uh, nine to 12 hours. I get that. And 30 to 50K runs take, you know, four to six hours. So a, a difference. I get that. But keep in mind that as you're prepping for your running, your heart and your lungs and your aerobic capacity and the engine is still helping your cycling. And if you've noticed in your training a lot, when you run trails, and especially when you're running uphills, and you do a lot of trail running, standing on your bike becomes a very fluid, natural motion. Because when we're standing on a mountain bike or on a road bike, and um, driving the pedals, it's very similar running to the running motion, especially a slight uphill on trails. And so you should have a fair amount of power that transfers from trail running over to the mountain biking side. But high level, there's a variety of ways you can go about this. One, of course, is the, the, the phases that I've talked about in the past where you say, okay, I'm gonna go through a two-week running phase, one-week cycling phase, uh, excuse me, two-week running block, one-week running uh, cycling block, because the one-week cycling block will help you recover from the two-week running block. And while you're in the running block, you can do some active recovery cycling to stay connected to the cycling motion. You know, um, again, the heart doesn't know what the body is doing. So your strong heart, your strong aerobic capacity, your strong engine that delivers oxygen to the working muscles, your increase in blood plasma, all the mitochondrial density, all those things that you're building, your capillaries, your strength, all that stuff is all being helped across function here. Mountain bike and um, um, trail running. So keep the big picture in mind. Am I having a stimulus towards either of the two activities? And in most cases, the answer is yes. Now, as you get into specifics, of course, as you get closer to the 50K trail races or the 30K to 50K trail races, you know, your, your focus might need to and your specificity might need to switch more to running. As you get closer to the cycling races, you need to be specific maybe more on the cycling side, not neglecting either or, but when you're doing intervals or steady state work or um, you know technical work, right? We said with regards to stress, strength, technique, recovery, endurance, speed specific, that you might be more sport specific on the one side as you build your weeks versus if you don't have a trail race coming up or if you don't have a mountain bike race coming up. So the two one is a good way to approach it. You could also do bigger cycles where you say, okay, I'm gonna do um, you know, something like two weeks of running heavy, two weeks of cycling heavy, one combo week. Or I can do a 10 day build running with a long run at the end of it or give myself two days off after the 10 day build from running or three days and do my long run at the end of that. So that's a two week window, let's say. And then as you're building up that second week from the for the running, you gradually start inserting more and more cycling. So you come off the big run, you build a full running week, a uh, cycling week, and then 
and you have a great week of cycling on the second half of the, the of this 10-day build in cycling and so again you're using your days and your schedule and your ability to grow and adapt to the training in volume and intensity and specificity to how it works but the two don't conflict that much at all um Again, if I'm thinking about getting out there for a six-hour run, I have one in a few weeks with, um, I'm doing a 50K, sort of as training and getting the leg um, stamina and durability up. No, I'm not looking to shatter any um, past best times on this uh, 50K course, which I've run a few times, way too cool 50K. It's on the Western States course. It's coming up in a few weeks. Um, So... I'm using that and thinking, all right, I'm getting ready for a five-hour run. No, it's not going to take me five hours. I know that. But aerobically, like we talked about a few weeks ago, I will be ready to run for five. Now, running for five has been um, facilitated by the coast ride where I was on my bike uh, riding for seven hours a day. Sure, lower intensity because the heart rate's a little bit lower with regards to cycling. And sure, less pounding on the legs, but my body mentally and with regards to time out there and breathing and heart rate and durability of continued time, putting, putting consistent time in nonstop for seven hours, for five days in a row, that means five hours the body has the energy and the lung capacity and the um, aerobic durability capacity in that respect to do five hours comfortably so now it's a question of my body physically muscularly joints support muscles structure holding together for five hours right it's one thing being able to do something for five hours how many times have you come back from a workout or how many times have i seen logs where it's like my heart and my breathing my energy was fine (laughs) my legs gave out Exactly. That's what we want to bring up to par. That's what I'm trying to bring up to par as well. And I feel pretty comfortable around three hours. I'm not at the five hours yet. So, you know, my training is going to revolve around a little bit more um, running and durability and getting the body ready for the five-hour run versus a lot of cycling right now. For example, this week, I wanted to get in an extra long run, uh, long bike ride. Probably won't because one, I not refuse, but it's not necessary to get on a trainer yet for many hours because it's been raining a lot in Northern California. And two, if I have to choose between the stimulus that I need in the short term, the 50K is coming up. In the long term, Alaska Man's coming up. So I will get the long bike rides in when the weather is appropriate and I will get the runs in as I see the priority for that. Well, what's the best um, solution this week in order to be prepared, healthy, kick out of the 50K, ready to continue to build fitness, build the platform for Alaska Man? So, I hope that answers the question. It should not conflict. I would look at the total hours. So for a 100-mile mountain bike race, right? Again, what we said, same as the 50K training plan. Looking at, let's say, an 11-hour day or 12-hour day. Well, 
how am I building my durability and my hours to a 12 hour day? Now mountain biking, it actually works quite well in that you string together the time and the hours. We've talked about this before on the podcast. Um, the hours into more and more condensed of a time window. And that means, so I'm getting ready for a 12-hour mountain bike ride. So this month, in order to get in 12 hours, it might take me a week. Um, As I get closer to the event, let's say next month, I can do 12 hours in five days. Um, And then, you know, that way you gradually build up your durability, and you decrease the time it takes to do the hours you're thinking for your event. In this case, hopefully come the summer, whenever this 100-mile bike ride is, let's say four to five weeks prior, you do either the 12 hours in a day or you do seven hours one day and, and go into the late afternoon. You start, let's say, at noon and ride until you know 7 p.m., have a quick dinner, recover some um, fluids and then go to bed and wake up crack of dawn and finish the remaining five hours so in a matter of 24 hours then because you're going to finish the five hours let's say before noon you did the 12 hours so that's a great way to know your fitness i do this with a lot of ultra runners too Again, it becomes very specific and individual to them of what they're tolerating where they've been but high level That's the concept. And so, again, it does not conflict with the 50K time because, again, if you're getting ready for something when you're out there for seven hours, getting ready to run for five hours and then or five to six hours for a 50K, then let's say then you just need three, four, five weeks to bring up that durability in the legs with regards to the pounding, not the fitness, not the endurance, not the oxygen delivery, not the energy just the durability on the body. And same thing cycling, bringing up the time in the saddle, the back, the joints, the neck, the pounding, especially mountain bike riding on the upper body and the hands and the shoulders and the elbow. And, you know, you're, 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 you're absorbing a lot. And that can be pretty achy too, which means you lose power. So, and then of course, strength ties into that. And so you want to flex around. But again, running Trail running and mountain bike strength are very similar in a lot of concepts. There's maybe two or three different exercises that you want to apply differently. But otherwise, yeah, strong chassis, strong core, strong legs, good power, explosive power to get up over the rollers and hills and high cadence climbing, things like that. So I hope that helps. And speaking of Alaska Man that I just brought up on the last question. It was interesting to me coming to a realization a few weeks ago in the meantime, yeah, that um, I realized that Alaska Man addresses a deeper um, question mark in my past with regards to racing and feeling incomplete. Because it's not a question of the distance, Um, Having done close to 40 Ironmans, um, I don't think, well, I'm trying to think if I've ever done a non-branded MDOT WTC Ironman event. Um, I don't think so. So this will be my first. So the question isn't 2.4 mile swim, 112 mile bike, and 26.2 mile run, 
And it's also not a question of running 26.2, partially, mostly on trails and elevation gain and difficulty. Um, done plenty of those that I feel pretty confident about it. What gets me and addresses a past disappointment, maybe even fear or judging myself, is the cold water and the cold temperatures. I did Ironman Lake Tahoe a couple years ago, and it was a DNF. And it's one of those races that doesn't necessarily stick with me because, because of the DNF in Tahoe and an injury I was working through and not finishing that race and sort of internalizing that and reflecting on that as well as a fire being stoked from that because I was sort of disappointed in myself, maybe some sort of self-judging there. Um, it progressed me to a smarter training plan and a better approach into the fall of that year and into the spring where I did a 100 miler, um, Rocky Raccoon, where I was really happy with having run 100 miles at a pretty fast pace, uh, not a lot of elevation gain at Rocky Raccoon. And then mm, 12 weeks later, maybe, doing Ironman Texas and having one of my best Ironmans on record, which is which was, I think, an 8.56, you know? And it was one of those times where it's like, I'm not gonna have an opportunity to run or to do a sub nine Ironman again. I think I was like 46 at the time, 47. And I was pretty stoked to have put together that double. And so on the one hand, Ironman Lake Tahoe left a void, a disappointment, a, a self-defeating um, um, aspect in me. But luckily, taking the failure of that day the lack of mental fortitude of that day and switched it into learning and reflecting and thinking what it is I did wrong, how I could be better, how I could be stronger, and what my intent is for what I think was 2014 then, 2014, 2015, somewhere around there. I think it was 2014. So that being said, um, yes, I had a hip injury at the time and couldn't really run as effectively as I wanted to, but there was a deeper um, disappointment of myself from that race, and that was the cold. That was the cold temperatures. I allowed myself to be affected by the temperature, by the cold. I had a negative narrative in my head for that race. Um, I could have pushed through and finished. I did have a voice, a strong one, and a gut feeling that pushing through the hip injury um, after about eight miles, I think it was, nine miles, um, would have done longer-term damage um, for, not with regards to permanent, but more just like affecting my coming season and the preseason for 2014 or 2015. But it was more that there was a narrative in my mind with regards to negativity and cold temperatures. And I have not forgotten that since. Um, and so therefore, I believe that Alaska Man is partially my subconscious and something drawing me to that event to um, 
complete or close the loop, close the narrative, um, and, and check this off the list of things that I need to lean into. Um, that cold <laughs> and the fear that comes with it. I live in the Bay Area and I swim with a lot of guys and girls who go to the aquatic park and swim in the San Francisco Bay all year round. 51, 52, 53 degree temperatures for 30, 40, 50 minutes at a time. No wetsuit, none, none on a cold, rainy, 43 air temperature degrees and they're jumping into 51, 52 degree water. I can't do that. Now, of course, can I physically? Can I? Yes. But mentally, <laughs> I I can't, right? I avoid it. I say it's not for me. And I gave myself this narrative that's been solidified over many years, not just with Ironman Lake Tahoe, over many years around that. And so... Part of this training, part of this prep, part of signing up for that is the difficulty of that. The water temperatures will be in the upper 40s. I will need to get into the San Francisco Bay without a wetsuit and prepare for that event. I will be cold in Alaska during that event. I will be cold on the bike and shivering like I was in Lake Tahoe for that Ironman, when the air temperature was 28 degrees at the start and 29 degrees going downhill on uh, Route 89 at, you know, 30 miles an hour so that the wind chill on our bodies was, you know, probably in the teens <laughs> doing a triathlon. But those are excuses the way I describe them because guess what? 12 to 13 to 1400 other people completed it and did it and overcame it and dealt with the cold. And so therefore, it's possible. It's my narrative. It, and I know, I remember. I remember how I felt. I remember my self-talk. I remember the justifications. I remember the sensations and they're not shaking my head. And again, the negativity, negativity and the negative self-talk that was happening. So that's my thought around Alaska Man. And that's my um, curiosity. That's my outer edge of what, not what I deem possible, but the outer edge of what's in my zone of control and comfort that dealing with the cold and prepping in the cold for that day will just create hopefully a new normal for me. Um, a narrative where I might not enjoy necessarily swimming in the cold, in the cold bay, but I know I can and that I put myself in the right mindset, I can. And I can actually have an experience, whether in Alaska or in the training weeks, it's part of the journey and part of the process to actually enjoy it with other people and grow from there. And again, mentally get stronger, mentally shift the paradigm, mentally be able to deal with the cold better, leaning into something that I have avoided, leaning into some, um, 
something that I'm, I would say I fear. Not necessarily a fear like, oh my God, I'm going to die fear, but more uncomfortable. Avoiding the uncomfortable is also a fear, a fear of being uncomfortable. And so that's part of the Alaska man process. And I came to that conclusion and realization a couple of weeks ago while out on a long run and listening to some sort of a book on tape, or not on tape, who listens to tape anymore? <laughs> who runs around with their Walkman? Um, I don't. <laughs> so it's not a book on tape. It's an audio book. Um, and it just brought around that, that conversation in my head of like, huh, there's something there. There's something there to unpack. And I hope for many of you, you also have these experiences while you're out training, noticing something to unpack and diving deeper into it, noticing something to unpack and, and having a conversation with yourself around it. And it doesn't need to be resolved. There might not be an outcome, but you do know that there is or that you do recognize that there's something there. And it'll come maybe in a different day, or maybe there'll be a different opportunity or time when this will flash in front of you or this realization will come up again. It will bubble to the surface. And then you have even more experience or thoughts or ability to embrace that and think about how to unpack it even more. And that's what happened with me with Alaska Man. I like this email I received, and it's not necessarily because of the knowledge that we can discuss in it um, with a question or so, but it just made me chuckle, and I think it will kick out other thoughts as um, I'm diving into it. Um, Chris, I'm about 90% sure I'm going to sign up for Wilder Man. That's one of the races I put in the newsletter as something really cool and different. And um, again, something um, to take a different view of the ultra endurance world. It, it doesn't need to fall into the parameters of, let's say, triathlon or, well, in this case, it is a triathlon, but it's an off-road triathlon or, let's say, trail races. There's all kinds of adventures out there. And whether you curate one yourself, which means I've always wanted to run this or do that, right? Um, and that you just sort of figure out how to build the fitness and the technical skills and maybe the sports-specific skills to go out and do that. Or build your knowledge, build your platform of uh, skills in order to maybe do what you've always wanted to do or curate your adventure for maybe next year or a year and a half from now or two years and build individual little uh, events or adventures for yourself along the way. Um, I'm a huge proponent of creating your own adventure because there's something unique, exciting, curious, um, adventurous, of course, in it, but you also have to do the research. You have to think it through from other angles. You're not a participant in the adventure. You are the adventure. You're the race director. You're the, um, the participant and you're the safety and the aid station all in one. And so because of that process, because you're going through those thoughts and that journey and uh, applying it and learning, 
Your learning curve is dramatically increased by it, of course, too. But also it makes it oh so much more exciting and it makes it oh so much more gratifying when you do complete accomplish it. Um, I'm looking to do something similar this summer in uh, doing what's called the Teton Traverse. And many of you know that I like to spend time outside of Jackson, um, Wyoming, and we're on the Idaho side in Victor and Driggs and in that area. And so right outside of my doorsteps are some great peaks. And with the Teton Traverse, um, it's something I'm looking to run with Emily in one day. And it's been done before. And it's not something that is completely new in the endurance world, whether it's um, climbing world or extreme hiking world, even sky running world. But it's something new for Emily and I to do this type of adventure. And it's definitely newer for Emily. So the, the adventure, the excitement, the curiosity in it is being able to put together an effective training plan for us and just going out and finding out if we can. And guess what? If we don't do it or aren't successful, meaning we only do 80% of it, or we signed up for too much and it's it's not really possible for us to do. Well, the adventure of it and doing it and the story behind it is going to be epic as well. Actually reminds me of a quote I once read and that is, bad decisions make good stories. And, and this was brought up in the case that there's always a silver lining, but um, not necessarily bad decisions. We don't want to make bad decisions up on a mountain range, but um, failures and uh, not being successful probably always carries a good story with it. Because even in this case, we will be prepared. We'll be plenty fit. I mean, you got to figure it's 10 peaks, 14 miles, so not distance, but 10 peaks, 24,000 feet of vertical gain and loss, and it's a, it's a pretty substantial um, adventure. It starts at about 6,700 feet, and it links about 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, well, 10, 10 peaks, <laughs> duh. <laughs> it, it links together 10 summits. Like I said, 10 peaks. So um, while the climbing difficulties uh, are up to, uh, for those of you that are familiar with climbing, about 5.8, the Grand Traverse isn't necessarily technically difficult, but route finding is difficult um, or tricky. And so therefore, it will require a fair amount of planning and prep and familiarity up there. And um, that, it can be done in a day um, by most people who are willing to do some free soloing of the technical portions and running the rest. And so, yeah, will it be an adventure? Yes. Is it something maybe in over our heads a little bit? Maybe, but we'll find out out there. And again, that's what curating your own adventure really is. And with that, if, it, if, it, if we aren't successful, we'll have some really good stories around it. So back to this email, what I like about it is uh, you'll, you'll see in a moment. Um, I'm still naive to think that a full Ironman is in play. The longest I've done is a 70.3, but I'm in a place now I can fully com commit and propel my fitness. 
This is not an athlete of mine, by the way. It won't be easy, but the journey will be rewarding. Bingo. Um, I want a new challenge, and this has been screaming at me since you mentioned it. I mentioned it on that, um, either on a podcast or also on, for sure on the newsletter. I'm looking at all options right now and for the most efficient tools to do the job. <laughs> Why, you might ask. Ironman is pretty much everything I hate in corporate America, and I'd rather spend my resources elsewhere. So been saying, thinking it for months now and realized my actions should reflect my thoughts. Um, no need to let sunk costs determine my future. Original plan is doing Chattanooga 70.3 in May. So the, that's why I brought it up. What's beautiful here is the alignment of values and what uh, he, in this case, sees of what's important to him and then getting outside of the box, getting outside of our periphery, getting outside of those blinders that we have on and can't see the full 180 vision in front of us, instead only looking at the tunnel of um, vision in front of us, and is realizing there's so much more to experience and to be curious about and to live the life of adventure about than just Ironman races than just the um, experienced packaged um, in a variety of uh, pickup in a variety of um, trucks, um, 18 wheelers, and that is moved from location to location in the United States. Now, don't get me wrong. I am a big supporter. I have been a big supporter of Ironman and uh, I've done plenty of them and I like the managed um, replication of the event anywhere and that you know what you're getting into because you're putting a lot of time and resources into the training for an Ironman or 70.3. And so knowing from a safety, from a transitions, from a aid stations, from an outcome, from a course, from a competitors, from a start to finish, um, it's all pretty much meets expectations and fits the profile that you also have seen on YouTube and have prepared for. You get the voice when you finish that you are an Ironman. It all feels familiar, but slight differences in all locations to give you somewhat of a unique experience. Now, I'm not necessarily sure that these all should be for 900, 800 plus dollars. And I'm also not really um, a big proponent of how it's been bundled into um, less of an adventure, less of an experience of going inside yourself, less of self-discovery, less of pushing beyond your limits, less of not knowing what you will do or what the outcome will be, and that the adventure and the day will unfold in front of you, unfold in front of you. Yes, that has gone missing. It is a very managed day, oftentimes multiple loops so that you just can sort of work yourself on the treadmill for, for lack of a better description to the finish. Um, and it's a great, safe, smart, yes, smart progression of your fitness of your endurance fitness to the more extreme ultra endurance events, which I wish for all of you is the bigger outcome. 
because I believe, again, totally my beliefs here and totally the way I see this uh, evolution of ourselves and this sport um, and have come to grow in it myself, as I wish upon all of you to be in some sort of ultra endurance world at some point in your lives because the time for thought and going inside yourself and reflection and the wandering mind and how your spirit grows and nourishing the soul and nature and all those qualities that I talk about and um, discovering more of, of, of the, the, the closed doors in our mind, in our soul and opening them up because we have time out there that is all part of the ultra endurance experience. And of course, not all of us have time or the resources to do this, to do many of them, let alone to do them frequently. But I wish upon anybody that they at least get to experience the training and the event of something like this once. Because I can believe, and I've, I've found with most of the athletes I coach, that it's, it is a transformational experience. I have seen very, very few athletes that come out of an ultra endurance experience um, the same person as they were going in. Um, there is no robotic outcome of um, a 100 mile run, of a multi-day stage event, of an ultraman, of a self-curated adventure that takes two, three, four, five days. And don't get me wrong, this doesn't need to be this hugely athletic adventure. I, I believe hiking the John Muir Trail um, for four, five, six days is an ultra endurance event. I believe there's a variety of ways we can put together some amazing ultra endurance events. There's guys in Scandinavia that I was thinking, actually, I'm going to put on the next newsletter. They're putting together ultra endurance events that are beyond um, what I can fathom doing in extreme environments and extreme temperatures and extreme uh, locations, environments, also temperature and, and so forth. Um, Yes, there, there's all kinds of crazy adventures. And I say crazy because the mind wants more, the soul wants more, the, the, the brain and the soul is so curious as to how far we can go. There's that. And I think there's many, many people out there like me who want to bring more of nature and this um, growing your inner self and your inner reflection to the outside world and understanding your inner self and interconnection better. I think there's more and more people that are looking that want more people to experience that. And therefore, they're putting on these events. And these aren't six, 700 people doing these events. These are two, 300, maybe. But there is that opportunity. And I believe there's a common thread there to give us the opportunity to edit the story of our lives. As I was saying earlier, that many of us have a new sense of curiosity and ownership and um, ability, maturity in many cases, to um, write the story of our lives. We have enough content, now we wanna edit and be the author of the story of our lives. And I believe some of these adventures are purely that. So when I saw this, this was a, um, there, that's one of the main reasons I wanted to bring it up is I commend him 
I commend this email writer for following through on something that his gut and his insight and his care told him, you know what, it's everything that I don't like about corporate America. And yes, because it has been packaged, Iron Man, it has become less personal. I totally understand that and see that. And again, I'm not here to criticize or bash on the, the product that they put forward. It is a very, very um, safe and smart and progression-oriented growth into the endurance world. And they have found a niche that um, they are very happy with. And I still believe, though, for all of you, that it can be a stepping stone into a new um, in, into a new realm of the ultra-endurance world. So I think I've talked enough about that. So the last thing I want to talk about this week is questions I continuously get about um, training while traveling. Many of you have to travel for work. Many of you have to travel just in general. Um, it's not always for work. And when we're on the road it becomes a little bit complicated. And we're out of our regular environment. We're not familiar with the routes. We're not familiar necessarily with the equipment in the hotels. We're not familiar necessarily with the quality of the equipment in the hotels. And so it becomes an, a strategic approach to training while traveling, as well as a bigger um, philosophy. And I say this to all my athletes, and I've said this on this podcast, I'm sure, before, that when we're on the road, we want to think of different priorities with regards to our training. One, if we're on the road only for a few days, well, then we want to think about, one, inserting a rest day or so in there and using the travel time to catch up on recovery. Good sleep, maybe some stretching, maybe some um, massage or yoga or something like that. But main thing is, if it's a shorter trip, let's say two, three days, um, it's a great opportunity to shut it down, catch up on some sleep, regenerate, recharge, revive the body so that it is able to train really effectively um, and absorb some real effective training once you're back. When we have shorter trips like that too, as we're regenerating and getting extra sleep, we're also, also hopefully catching up on work and catching up on the little responsibilities that we have in our day, days that we can hopefully take care of now on the flights and in the hotel and in some downtime that will free up time for when we get back and have a weekend and can focus on our main commitments, which is family and then hopefully some you time, some self-care time, some training time. So that's usually with the shorter trips. So let's say it's three days. Um, when I get on site, I usually have my athletes find something if they don't have meetings right away, if let's say they're moving time zones or it's been a long trip back east and you lose most of your day. I still like them to head down to the hotel gym and get in a short run, 40 minutes, 45 minutes, nothing dramatic on the treadmill, nothing hard, no interval, no focus, just steady, shake out the travel. I really like that um, my athletes have the ability to put 
the day of travel, the stress and the adrenal upside downness, not sure if that's a word, of travel and reset with just an easy, steady run or an easy hour on the exercise bike if they're cyclists or an easy 40-minute swim if they're swimmers or something like that so that we can just reset. And now you're on site. Now you've raised your heart rate and been invigorated. You take a shower and it feels like the trip is at least somewhat behind you and you can reset in your new location. Get a good night's sleep. Then we either get up the next morning and do a workout, treadmill, bike, strength, core, stability, um, elliptical, Stairmaster. There's a zillion different ways we can get the heart rate up on the road. Um, again, not in a taxing mode. The important thing is to keep in mind, especially when cycling or even running, um, we don't want to tax the body on things that are unfamiliar with it. That exercise bike that might be set up a tiny bit differently um, if we do work too hard on that exercise bike, guess what? That will carry over into a little niggle here, a tighter back there, a weird um, hamstring um, stress there. And so we don't want that. We want to kick out of this trip as effectively, as healthy, as regenerated, as recharged, as motivated as possible. So we keep a light workout that morning. Maybe we do some increases in speed or leg turnover to get the heart rate stimulated a bit, but nothing too demanding. That's morning one of day two on the road. And usually that last day, the third day, is a rest day, right? And let's say you're traveling on the fourth day. You're traveling back home again. Reset with a swim, a bike, a run, some sort of activity, elliptical, whatever it is. Shower up, clean yourself up, trip behind us again. Now we've got the whole trip behind us and we're back at home. And again, we reset, we reground ourselves back in our environment and then are ready to train the following day, day five in this case. If the trips are longer then it becomes a question of managing the trip, right? We want to be strategic in knowing where we're going to be staying, what the facilities offer, and then building a plan ahead of time, ideally, in order to execute while on the road. I have what I often do for athletes. I say here are, let's say the trip is seven days, a week long and two different hotels or three different hotels. And we don't know all the circumstances of meetings and schedules and um, appointments, right? Whether it's traveling with family or for work, dynamics get in the way for sure. So let's say we're going for seven days. Uh, we'll have a rest day in there. So now we have six days. Then we have um, our two sort of uh, days on the front and the back end in order to do a reset workout. So now we're down to like four days of needing workouts, of which I gave them four workouts to choose from. So I'll put them in, not necessarily meaning that they need to be on a specific day, but in this week on the road, get in these four workouts. Again, they're not necessarily generic, but they're not specific enough that I'm going to ask them to do specific work, let's say on a bike or on 
a run where they're in unfamiliar territory. The treadmill only takes you so far, and some of the treadmills as we're on the road are not that reliable or effective or don't do what they what we want them to do, or they have a time limit, or there's other people waiting. I mean, there's a variety of factors in there. And so I don't want us to create stress or be upset or be um, um, overloaded by the fact that we can't get in what we were intending to get in. We don't want to judge ourselves when we're in this type of environment where things are out of our control. So it's a drop-down menu of four workouts and try to get these in over the next six days, right? Again, thinking and knowing for my athletes, when they come back, this is the reset. This is where we're at. They should be pretty well recharged. Hopefully they've been fueling and nourishing themselves in a healthy manner, part of their regeneration, part of their revitalization for the training that's coming up. And so now we're talking seven to eight days of travel can be overcome pretty effectively like this. Core is great for hotel rooms with a short run after. Core is great for hotel rooms with an elliptical or an exercise bike after. The beauty of being a good swimmer is there's a lot of options if you have a swimming pool to still have a pretty effective swim workout. So there's so many little things that we can do and tweak in order to be successful on the road and still thinking, what's my desired outcome? And my desired outcome in this case when being on the road is about how am I preparing myself? How am I setting myself up to be more effective when I get home, be ready and set up and also have freed up time in order to have a great few days of training. Because there's nothing worse than coming home from a business trip and still having too much work and feeling guilty of not spending enough time with the family and feeling stressed and guilty that you're not getting in any training. Now everything is coming not crashing down, that sounds too negative and dramatic, but it's what goes through our minds. And so what am I doing today to ensure that in the future, in the next seven or eight days, I have time and flexibility to have great training sessions and to be fully present for the things that I need to be present for, which is family first. And then hopefully because of the business trip and the work you did on the trip, you have some flexibility and time with regards to getting some training in. Not necessarily this over endurance, big volume training, but really effective um, adaptive training, stuff that you can really absorb and have a real fitness boost from. You can use a two to three, four day business trip as an effective way to boost your fitness, to boost your training, to boost your motivation. You can use a seven to 10 day trip to come out of it very recovered, healthy, connected to fitness again, in order to then focus on how you will get a boost in fitness. And I'm sure you come back motivated because you've missed a bunch of days and you're excited to get after it. So. That's sort of the high-level way to go, that I like to work with my athletes on getting through travel. All right, I think that'll be it for this week's episode, episode 97 of the Weekly Word Podcast. Remember, there's a lot of information out there that I try to share 
And um, it starts with this Weekly Word podcast. Hopefully you also have signed up for the newsletter, the Weekly Word newsletter. It only comes out about once a month. I try not to bombard you with a lot of stuff. And again, one of the things that I pride myself on all this is that it's all free. It's all here for you to somehow um, be successful in the best athletic current version of yourself, right? And I always talk about this. I can only talk about athletic version of yourself. We all know that a lot of this applies to other aspects of your lives, but and then I um, but I can only speak with good knowledge, good experience, um, and with good reflection um, upon the athletic experience of and, and version of your life. But um, the also the, the other aspect I talk about is the current version. This is the important thing to keep in mind. And I say that with sort of um, a, 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 a change in voice because too many of us, I have been in this place before too, we connect with the non-current version of ourselves. Um, a, a version from many years ago, whether that's a negative version or a younger version or a judging version or a version that just had a different perspective on the world from a spiritual standpoint. Your current version, you can only affect that and become the best version of who you are in the now. And that, with when, we, when we're talking about from an athletic sense, means your current fitness, your current abilities, your current normal. Do we want to progress that forward? Absolutely. Do we want to create new normals? Absolutely. Do we want to make you fitter, stronger, better, smarter? Absolutely. But that'll be that next current version of yourself in weeks and months down the road. But are you doing your best currently? I hope so. And that is your best current version of yourself. You can't ask yourself to be someone you're not, to be fitter than you currently are, to have experience that you currently haven't gained yet. You can only be who you are. And with that, we try to do the best we can. I've been saying lately that this this, this expedition we're all on is called life. Let's not forget life is an expedition we're all training for. And in that way, we are all athletes and truly ultra-endurance athletes, right? This expedition of life is going to take a long time. It's going to require a ton of fitness, a ton of patience, a ton of zone two miles, right? Because there's just, we got to put in the work. But as we get older and as we recognize a lot of this, of what's going on, we're getting more and more experience in this ultra endurance world called life. And how do we want to curate our own life adventure? Do we want to do it via junk miles and just going through the motions? Or do we want to be focused, disciplined, committed in order to be fitter than the course? Fitter than the course that I talk about with regards to racing, with regards to events. But when we're talking fitter than the course of life, of that expedition, that is a hard course to become fitter than. And how do we become fitter than the course of life? That is by not doing putting in those junk miles and by making sure that we're progressing forward 
to the current best version of ourselves. So have a great week, everybody. Have a great week of training, of inputs, of growth, of knowledge, of being an athlete, right? Of Even if you're not training, of preparing yourself for better sessions in the future, better fueling, better nourishment, better sleep, better recovery, better hydration, better um, knowledge with regards to things that you listen to or read about so that when you are training, you are fully accelerating forward in your fitness. That's what being an athlete is, that you're constantly doing something to help you accelerate forward and become a better version and better athlete of yourself. So have a great week and thank you so much for listening.